Hockey Periodical Podcast. The podcast which used to be really about the Panthers, but since they're really bad, I don't want to talk about them anymore. This podcast, if we were talking about the Panthers, would basically be how Ariana Grande's entire discography are slights at the Panthers, because she dislikes them most as much as the rest of us do. But instead of doing that, we have another guest. Micah McCurdy, one of the great people of the hockey analytics world, is joining us. Hello, Micah. It's good to speak with you again. Hello, Matt. Thanks. It's good to talk to you, too. We talked before the podcast, and the same topic I talked with Corey Snyder about last week, which was the amazingly infamous, not really infamous, DC Hockey Analytics Conference from four years ago, the only one I actually went to. And the abiding memories of that is not necessarily just Rob Volman was hired by a team, Eric Parnas was hired by a team, Canucks Army was hired by a team, but you were speaking on the day, this is the last day of the NHL season, and the Senators, this is the Andrew Hammond years when they were respectable, and they were going to play the Flyers, and if they won, they'd make the playoffs. And so you were speaking as that game was going on, and we were giving you updates, and they scored a goal in the midst of that, and it was probably one of the funniest things that has ever happened at a hockey analytics conference. It was hilarious. I was very pleased. I, in fact, I, I remember being visibly pleased that that's uh, a had scored, especially because uh, he was one of my favorite players and uh, still is, even though he doesn't play for Ottawa anymore. And uh, it didn't, uh, it only slightly took the shine off of that when I got stick on it for Twitter afterwards for spoiling the game for a different sense fan who was watching me talk. It was weird. Like, wait a minute. Why would you, you can watch two things at once, can't you? I was very proud. I was extremely proud that, I, that they chose to, in, instead of a make and you're in playoff game for the Senators, they thought, I'll watch that on tape delay. But the stream of the hockey analytics conference. That's what I got to watch live. And this was, a so I, I took that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> this was in 2015, which was, it was, a, it was an amazingly fun conference. I wish they were more geographically convenient to me as opposed to just being that one, but it's a topic that we could go into another time because that was a, it was a crazy conference and it's amazing to think about how many people have been hired and how much has changed since then. So when I, when we think about you and what you do, you are the guy who brings out all of these crazy visual graphics about, all sorts of different things in games, playoff odds, the sadness charts, which are my personal favorite because I obviously I'm a Panthers fan and there's a lot of sadness. So when you think about where you started out doing all of this to where you are now, when you go back and think about it, what goes through your mind? Well, it's for me, it was all very gradual all the time. Like I, I didn't sort of sit out one day and think, you know what the world needs? Needs more data viz about hockey. Like that's the, I, I really kind of fell into doing what I was doing. Cause for me, at first it was a, a sideline hobby where I wanted to do predictions purely to satisfy my own curiosity. And because I had the right kind of background and training that, that let me do it in a difficult, what, what I considered respectable way, then I had to do it that way, but it was complicated. So I kept on getting confused and I couldn't look at the data properly unless I made a graph of it because I can't, understand anything that's not a picture and then i made all these graphs and to keep myself honest about as i was doing it i made them for every team even though i only cared about certain teams at the time uh, as a kind of debugging thing and then there were people on twitter and i didn't have anything to talk about on twitter and so i just started posting these graphs uh, and then people started asking me for graphs and so i made a website so that they could get the graphs without having to bother me and and it just sort of grew from there into where now it's my full-time job so in some sense the when i look back and you know, even even back to that time in in Washington, you know, I wasn't working full time in hockey at the time. I was that was my first conference. I was only just starting to work seriously at anything, and it I didn't dream at the time it would be a job. 
So there, in some sense, that's the the breaks. I don't know if breaks is the word. That's how it goes when you're making up a new career as you go along. Well, isn't that kind of how basically this entire movement of analytics, I know Jeff Barrick hates that term, but it's the easy default to go to when you don't want to stumble and mumble your way through finding a better term. But isn't that kind of how this entire world kind of developed just a lot of happy accidents in many ways? Because yeah. you think about it, like that's kind of is like somebody said, oh, I wanted to talk about these things and explain hockey better. Or in Tyler Dello's case, the Edmonton media is bad. I want to prove them wrong. And this is how I'm going to prove them wrong. You know, and then you get happy accident after happy accident. And here we are. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And and all of the all of the analytics talks and, and movement, you know, I mean, it sounds grandiose, but that's what it is. Like there's only the only thing you can think about. The only thing that can really drive you is um, something that you are curious about yourself. And so the because it's not professionalized now, there's no there's no um, like. You know, there's no outfit which just does analytics, which pays people who come in on a nine to five. Like every single person, man, woman, and child is looking at something that they don't understand that they want to figure out. You know, there's there's a little bit of, of professionalization, if you like, where the data tracking companies are starting to put up some headcount, you know, like Sports Logic are starting to put up some people. The the there's a handful of teams that have, you know, groups that aren't just a single person working remote in a basement like I've done for a few teams. The you know, so you're getting that professionalization now, the, but that comes really slowly, and so it kind of moves out of this hobbyist space, which is going to have that that like DIY organic feel, um, which is kind of a pain sometimes because you get the dramatic squabbles, and you know, and sometimes people's work is bad, and there's no process for like airing that out in a way that's that's not personal and gross, and you know, all of those attendant problems. But that's what you get when you, that's how new fields emerge. And in some sense, it just can be really fun too. I think it was a lot of fun because for a while it was really, I wouldn't want to say hipster because that's not the right word, but it was kind of like, when I first discovered, I was like, this is really interesting. And I'm not a math guy. That's why I went to journalism and history because I wasn't great at math, particularly statistics. These are all things that I never really understood, particularly data viz. That's something that's way out of my field. But when you thought about it, it's like, I want to think about this sport, particularly in a new way. And also, I think, unlike baseball or basketball, which had to be more, you know, amenable to it, hockey is such, a, such an insular sport and is so culturally hesitant to expand its purview outside of its circle that analytics definitely played a role into that. I mean, now it's not nearly as much. I think everybody accepts the role that they play. But we're now reaching the point where it's not just about simple stats anymore. It's about how can we go on to better explain things that we don't understand using more refined concepts? And it just kind of gradually evolved. And the thing is, because it was such a new and emerging field, and it emerged in many ways on social media, on the cesspool that is Twitter, you had a lot of these things that ended up squabbling in fights. But through those fights, we got really amazing stuff. And unfortunately, some of it now is behind the walls of teams. But your stuff is not. And it helps a lot of people. I think you've gotten really popular because of it. A lot of other people have gotten really popular by just talking about it because fans want more than they have been getting. And this is a market that is now being more served than it was. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, and, and market is a funny thing though. Like on the one hand, there's an enormous appetite, but on the other hand, there is that, that cultural pushback from, from people who are established in the sport, you know, as recently as yesterday, somebody who'd followed me for years, the, you know, told me that I should watch more games and unfollowed me. And, 
and sort of dismissed my opinion about something because I was had my head buried in in charts, quote unquote. But the but also you have the the element where people don't quite know what to do with anything you're putting out because in some sense, you know, they they respect you, but also they don't really know who you are because you're just some person on a Twitter account. You know, you don't tweet for an institution. You don't have like, I mean, I have academic credentials, which are totally relevant. The, you know, nobody quite knows what, how to interact with this stuff because it's not, you know, it's not like the dictionary in the kind of accepted, we all know it's correct, you know, and even then we still fight about it sometimes because we love to fight. And it's also not like some guy ranting at a pub like it's there's something very very unclear about the status of of all of these things which is the great aspect of a place like twitter where you know you just want to sign up and you can sign up and you can talk you can tell the world your great or terrible opinions about hockey as you please or your great or terrible data viz or or the show (laughs) yeah right and and you know that's that's a great great thing where you can I mean, in fact, one of the, like, even within that, even with that said, we've seen terrible problems with, with gatekeeping, with, with people trying to keep new fans out, with people trying to keep, you know, the wrong kinds of fans out. The, like the old specters of sexism and homophobia are still, still present and we're fighting that. Yeah. Some of us. And the, and so like, I mean, that like doing it all in public aspect can be, can be unnerving at the same time as it's exciting at the same time as it's as it's necessary to breathe fresh air into something and then after all that you still have to get some work done you gotta try to actually do what you're doing right and and be persuasive and convincing you know all at the same time and i i i wouldn't say i find it comfortable but i do say that i enjoy it i really like that that angle to doing work and it's something that i didn't get in my previous incarnations of my life which was which were all purely academic I think that because in academia you get challenged, but you get challenged by people who are like you in a very academic way. And if any of you, I mean, I've, I've went to college. I'm not exactly what I'd call an academic, but when you are into history and when you're into some of these things, and that's what happens sometimes. Your opinion gets challenged, but it's a very academic point of view, and that's a point of view that 0.1% of the world has. You know, but when you're on Twitter and when you're talking with hockey fans, the range of hockey fans in, I wouldn't say intellect or IQ, but the range of experiences can range from zero to a hundred. And you don't know which one's going to be interacting with you at any one given point. Right. So that also changes, that also changes it too, because when you start to do this with hockey fans, you've got people who hate this stuff and can't stand it. But then you've got people who are like me who are like, I don't know the work behind it, the numbers behind it and the creation behind it. But any way that I can better understand this sport is one that as a journalist and a broadcaster, I want because I always come from a point of asking, how can I know more and what else is there going on that I know understand that will help me better understand what is going on? Well, and that diversity of perspective is is precisely what what gives you a little bit of vertigo sometimes where you'll you'll have, you know, I'll post a viz of some particular thing, especially if it's a new viz of something that, you know, I haven't been putting out for years. Uh, and I'll, I'll get simultaneous comments that say, you know, this is crazy bullshit. No one could possibly understand this. You know, why don't you dumb it down? People saying, and, and then the next comment will be somebody saying, you know, this is grossly oversimplifying. I can't believe you would put something out like this without also including such and such and zone starts and something else. The and Which must mean you're doing a good job because you get hate from I, the ends. I mean, I, I guess. But on the other hand, you know, they laughed at Bozo the Clown too. Like sometimes you just put out bad stuff and everybody says it's bad because it's bad. 
And you know, there's definitely things that I've worked on for a few days that I just say, okay, that one doesn't have to ever come out again. It's and that's fine. It's a learning experience, but it's chastening because now it's all public. It's not like you know you can screw up something and it's just a bunch of academics saw it and said, go back and try again. This is this is Twitter, and when you're wrong, you get pilloried for it. And right, but it's also exhilarating. Like I put out something about I don't even remember who, but then all of a sudden I saw it was being passed around a little Finnish subset of hockey Twitter, where all of the comments and these long discussions in my mentions all in Finnish, where they're not paying attention to me. They don't even realize that I'm still tagged in the thread. They're just talking hockey. Well, that's happened before and... to me too, and it happens every time I post something about the Panthers that gets that catches fire, and you get these long discussions, and you go, guys, I'm trying not to pay attention here. I don't want to drag myself into this. And with the Panthers, that could be lots of random things. But, okay, firstly, I want to get back to, I think, the, the moment that is maybe the moment of genesis, I think. Well, what was the moment where you realized, okay, people really like what I'm doing here, and there's something that I can do that's going to be different to what I see? What, was there a moment or was there a, a time when you did something or you posted something or you produced an angle to look at something in this sport in a way that made you feel like, oh, my voice here is kind of respected and I can start doing this more than just a hobby. Is there any one moment or is that just an accumulation of stuff that happens? It's, it's definitely mostly an accumulation. It's just the grind of many, many days over many years. But there was one, there was one peculiar um, sort of a set of moments which really had a, uh, it's a tricky story to tell because there's certain parts of it that, I, that aren't public. Um, but I was working as a contractor for a team that I'm no longer working for. And uh, and before I say anything more, I really, you know, this is a team that I that I, I did a contract for. I I entered and left on great terms. They treated me beautifully. Everything was fine. The, you know, I don't, I didn't bear them any grudges whatsoever. And I was doing primarily um, just research projects for them. How does this affect that? And so you, you know, it's open-ended stuff. The, and, but at one point they asked me to, to make a, a broader sort of like, you know, anything that you think could help the, you know, what, what do you reckon would improve the team? You know, argue your case, give your alternatives, you know, if so-and-so has to have his minutes decreased, who gets his minutes, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, explain. And so I did. And, and one of the things I found was uh, very tricky. Uh, I, I had a particular point I wanted to make about the team, about, about a particular player whose ice time I felt should be reduced and it should be given to someone else. And I was trying to come up with some viz to, to reinforce the point that I was making. And I had to come up with a new style of, of visualization completely to what I'd ever done before. Uh, and it didn't really work. And it was the, but it was good all the same. I felt the viz itself was good, even though I didn't really make the point the way I wanted to. And as it happened, my suggestion fell on deaf ears as many suggestions do. And they continued to do, to play their players as they had played them before and not in the way that I'd suggested. Um, but then a few weeks later, I, I repurposed the viz, I cleaned it up a little bit and started putting it out on Twitter and immediately got an incredible reaction where people said, oh, this is so fascinating. And they were like, they wanted to see it broken up by coach and they wanted to see it broken up by this and they wanted to see it by score state. And 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 then all of a sudden I realized this is really, you know, I, I enjoyed working for this team. The Like I said, when I started the story, the experience there was and is just incredibly positive. I'm still on good terms with all those people. But it made me think, you know, it's one thing to work and kick and scratch for every inch and then be told, you know, we're good. As opposed to putting something out on Twitter and immediately get a lot of people say, oh, this is great. I understand what I was trying to solve better now because you've put this out. That's a great feeling, 
even though on the one hand it's more diffuse you know you're not i'm not trying to win the stanley cup i'm trying to make infrastructure that helps other people feel good about their jobs it's you know it's not the same kind of visceral you did good punch but all the same that ability to impact lots of people at a stroke instead of just my boss and my team it's that really, was really magnetic because isn't that catharsis it just maybe for me it's just like oh i was right maybe that just comes from being more you know cynical and skeptical of things like when you're right it's a great feeling but it's also like you realize how many people change their opinions and think of things in a different way that they never would have thought about otherwise if they hadn't seen this you know what i mean and for and for a yeah. lot of people data viz is something that is completely far afield and if it's far afield for me and somebody who no, i wouldn't say interested in it but somebody who's like I, I definitely like to look at this to help me think about things in a different way then i don't know what it's like for a lot of other people and so when they see it there and you can see like mind blown in many ways like in that kind of a cathartic reaction too, in a similar way to oh my decision was taken up and now this team's playing better yeah there's there's definitely a catharsis there and there are a handful of cases where i have in you know indulged my pleasure to say you know you doubted my predictions and i was right all along the i mean there's that i told you so instinct is is universal to some extent but there's a different a different level to it where you're trying to where you i mean my analysis like sorry i'm tripping over this because it's a, a very subtle point a lot of people who go into data viz are primarily interested a lot of people who go into hockey analytics generally are primarily interested in analysis they want to make decisions you know they have they have strong opinions that that uh, you know this player should not play or this arrangement should be rearranged or people you know should work their power play setups like this and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong and analysis has never been my strong point you know i've never been especially good at being able to say oh you know oh so and so he's really good because of this this and this whereas so and so is a schmuck because of that that and that i'm much better at organizing large amounts of information so that what was confusing is now clear rather than making distinctions about oh so and so is is good for this reason and so so i prefer to take a you know even though i i mean everybody analyzes everybody has their own opinions about about everything but i try to organize my work in terms of infrastructure that way because i mean on a on a venal kind of mercenary level that makes me the ammunition seller right i'm not i'm not right or wrong i'm not on the on this side of the fight or that side of the fight i'm providing information to everybody and but and that's the kind of nasty way to look at it but the pleasant way to look at it is if you're a teacher then you want to teach everybody, not just the people you agree with, because because that rising tide ought to lift all boats. But if everybody understands, then all of the discussions are more sensible. All of the trades are fairer. All of the the discourse is not quite as bad. That's the way I would like to view journalism, <laughs> being the well, and sellers, as opposed to, you know, the opinion bringers in many ways, bringing truth. But, yeah. That's a that's a discussion. Uh, easier said than done, right? Oh, it, it it is, and I think that especially when you're in Twitter, which is all about my opinion versus your opinion, all the time about everything, definitely including hockey, it's hard to come out and just say, "Here's the information. You do with it what you will." I think it's really hard for a lot of people, even on, in the analytics world and Twitter, be going, "Here's the information," without putting a blanket statement of opinion on it. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot but of, of course you already have people, done, which oh right when does. you when you, but I mean you already have done when you say this is the, the information you know that's 
which is to say, you know, you put it in a little in 280 characters or in a, a JPEG that fits in the particular box. When you say this is the information you're saying, I have included the important information and excluded the unimportant information. And that kind of gatekeeping is, on the one hand, absolutely vital, but on the other hand, is hugely prejudicial. Yeah, yeah you have to, like, it requires, to do it properly, requires expert knowledge. And yeah. and I flatter myself to think that occasionally I do do it right, but often I do it wrong. And it And people who say, oh, well, you know, it's just the facts. I'm not really making any, you know, choices are absolutely lying to themselves and it's just and to other people too level i think than that most people yeah. could I, you don't want to disregard people's intellect but it's at a higher level than most people are in tune with i'd say well yeah i mean if you do it right it is but if you do it wrong which i have done sometimes then it's intellect at a lower level if you like you know if you if you put something out and say you know here's everything important and you miss something which is extremely important then then you're not really, it's not just that you're not helping, you might be actively misleading people. Which is, you know, how we learn, because you often get how to get it wrong before you get it right. And well, yeah. I think it's all of us, have, all of us have gone through it because we've realized, well, there are things that we used to think were pretty important and now they're not anymore. And that's, that's changed and evolved and you've obviously seen that. And so now I want to get into some of the specific viz that you do. And of all the ones that you do, Personally, there's a lot of them. I love all of them, but the ones that I love are the shot charts and the heat maps. I think those are really, really important, especially if you're in, like me, talking about how the Panthers, for instance, take a billion point shots and never get shots in key areas, and how that's a structural problem with the way that they play, and why their shot numbers might look better than they actually are, why there's a disconnect between the shots they generate and the chances they generate. I think that that's really one of the ways that I use that is these heat maps are critically important and for and against. And so is there any viz that you do now where you're like, I, I think that this is the one I get not the most joy out of making, but this is the one that I think gets the best reception and the one that is the best that I do right now in terms of telling people here's what's happening and here's the best visual way of describing what's happening. So I, um, I think you put your finger on the best one right away. Um, it's, being able to say, you know, like when I got into analytics, the the prevailing wisdom that had only just been established was that you should stop looking at goals and goal rates and start looking at shots and shot rates. You know, that was the the sort of key battle, which in some sense we're still fighting. But and and it took me a number of years before I realized that I could actually make something that would show at the same time the quantity and some proxy of the quality of shots you know it's not the same thing to like jam the puck into a goalie's pads from four feet out as it is to make a nice deke on a breakaway four feet out you know those are still totally different shots even if they show up in the data exactly the same way but but that that thing there's the only thing which comes close i think to that like level of immediacy of on the one hand mathematically sophisticated enough that it takes a certain amount of doing to put it in that shape and form so that you can see it that way. The only thing which comes close to that in terms of, of being actually productive um, is ice time charts. Uh, I have some charts where I show forward and separately defender ice time over the course of the season. So just for, for curiosity's sake, I pulled up the Panthers here for this season, and it's mostly flat across all the defenders. The Kivandel and Ekblad and Matheson have gotten the bulk of the time 
all situations. The between 20 and 25 minutes, all three of them. Um, Mark Pizik has has risen a little bit in the last 20 or 30 games. All of a sudden, he's going from playing 16 or 17 minutes a night to playing 20 minutes a night. And you see, you know, the usual meanderings in the third pair people. And and so for the Panthers this year, as I just described it, it's very sort of nothing especially interesting to write home about. But but when you actually see, oh, this is how many minutes this guy is actually getting, all of a sudden, a lot of arguments, you know, either flare into action as they should or or fall away. You say, oh, really, we've been wasting a lot of time about this guy. He plays six minutes a night and he's scratched every third night. Maybe it's not actually that important. Whereas other people say, aha, this guy who we thought of as a third pair, maybe second pair guy is actually getting 22 minutes a night, you know, except for that one, two weeks where he was hurt. And now all of a sudden you can make some arguments with some teeth. And the and that like just being able to see this is how much this person is on the ice is surprisingly easy to get in terms of, you know, oh, the ice time minutes are logged on every web page, um, but surprisingly tricky to get a handle on how they change over time. And so being able to, to look at a graph like that and say, okay, you know, yes, he did play two games on the third pair last week, but really he's not being deployed as a third pair guy on the course of a season here. Look at the whole season all at once. And, and so I'm very, pleased with those for that reason. I think that it helps a lot because you can say this is what his average ice time is, but that could be completely and totally inflated or deflated by one night. Somebody plays 30 minutes and another he plays 12, you know, right. It, it doesn't, it doesn't with the Panthers. It doesn't really help because Bob Bugner doesn't really, you know, change. Well, he put, he puts his lines in a blender every two seconds, but the defense pairings have never changed. And it's a bizarre thing that again, it's a Panthers related thing that maybe I'll get into later about all the things that I think about the Panthers, but <laughs> I, want to focus on, I want to focus on this first because, but, but as I said, like with the, the shot rates and the shot locations, I think these are really good because everybody who's watching hockey understands what a half of the rink looks like. And then if you put, here's the shot location, here's what it was, and here's where they came from and the frequency of it. Everybody can say, oh, I see what you're pointing out there. And you can see who gets those kind of good shots and who gets those locations and and how the team generates them. And that is something that sounds very simple. It's not simple at all. But when you put it on a, on a visualization like you do, I'm looking at the Leafs ads game from a couple of nights ago, just as an example. Like, these are where these unblocked locations go. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, that's interesting. And it tells you more than just saying, oh, he got a shot from this place. And here the Leafs had a good night in puck possession. But that doesn't tell you where the shots came from or how they generated them. And that I think it just it just it's a simple thing that helps people view the game in a different way. And that is what the best of this is, is giving people a new view into something you thought you knew about, but you can look at it a different way. It's I mean, I agree with all of that. It can be surprisingly subtle, though, the difference between something that that works and something that doesn't work. So that that shot location information, those shot charts, I put them out for about four or five months in a format that got no traction whatsoever because at first i didn't realize that the that the shot patterns for almost every player in the league are almost identical everyone at first i you know i just put the shots down on locations and then you know darker colors for more shots that's it and and then it turns out that every single person in the league shoots from close to the net a lot and shoots very little from far from the net and there's no mystery in the explanation once you know. It's because everybody knows that shots from far away hardly ever go in the net. Except the Panthers. And so they, 
<laughs> Except for so, Panthers. Well, <laughs> Panthers aren't even the worst this season at that. Which is the, amazing to me, because how is that well, even possible? I mean, the Flyers are a special thing. But, oh, okay. That's great but news the, for Tommy, because you know the other team he likes, besides the oh, Panthers, yeah. the Flyers. <laughs> he must be ecstatic so, to hear that. But the, I mean, and of course, a lot of these things are, are coaching strategies, and that's one of the satisfactions of being able to look at a graph and be like, uh-huh, I see how that, how that coaching strategy is playing out, in, at least in part. The, but then I, the switch I had to do to make it, to make that really go was to subtract out league average rates from all the same positions. So now all of a sudden, instead of just having one color where darker is more and paler is less, I had two colors where more red is more than average and more blue is more less than average. And then all of a sudden, which was something like, I don't know, an hour, two hours of work compared to weeks of work that I'd put in before that. And all of a sudden, one of the things that I'd put together, which was a dud, was incredibly successful. And now everybody loves it. And the difference between something which is legible and illegible is often not a question of data, um, but a question of taste and a question of good fortune about, you know, do you have the right tools under your belt? Do you have the right way to look at, at graphic design, for lack of a better word, because it's not really graphic design in the sense that you don't have a lot of choices. It's not like, oh, I'm going to make an ad for something. I'm going to make this look beautiful. I mean, you have to make it look beautiful, but your constraints of operating with data are, are so strong. You know, that mathematical angle comes in, you know, you, there's only so many things you get to do. And if you rearrange them this way, they will be misleading. And so that sweet spot can be really hard to find. And I don't pretend to be especially good at it, but one thing that makes it easier is talking to people all the time on Twitter where you see, you know, people, because people will give you their unguarded thoughts about things, you'll think to yourself, oh, that guy got the wrong impression. And then, you know, your first thought is, well, he must be an idiot, but you don't say that. But then you yeah. think to yourself, why did, why did he get the wrong impression? What did I do that made him, that threw him off? And then you say, oh, I see, you know, those blue colors should be more different than they are. And then you, you know, you tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. And then all of a sudden you've got something that's really good. Yeah, and that's and that's comes in. You can put all the hard work in, and then you go back and you look at it like, oh wow, I can't believe I missed that, or I can't believe well, I missed that. And it happens, and it's just like, oh really? And but that happens with everybody in every side of creative field. The data is very much creative, even if it is constrained. And and then you see that with all of your charts, the the player usage charts are really interesting, and just who gets used with who. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could say it in an oh I oh. Panthers example. Oh, the Panthers want to play Ekblad and Yandel with the top line all the time. But then sometimes you're going like, oh, well, I don't see how it gets deployed and how it gets matched. And then you see like, and then you add like minutes and goals to it. And you're going like, okay, this is a way of explaining like, okay, this is how he deployed this. And here are the trends that we can see from that. Taking, taking things that you see with your eyes and you know you see and you see over and over again, but then using the data to back it up and saying, you know, and that and that's what you, I think everyone uses it. It elucidates better trends. You know what I mean? And yeah, I, I think that that's that's the thing that helps. It's like using your eyes is very obviously important in every sport and everything that you do with watching sports, particularly this sport where it moves so quickly. You you obviously have your eyes, but then I would go like, okay, here's what I think I see, and then I'll go and look at you or any number of other great people on Twitter who produce this information and go, okay. Now I say, all right, either it's, yeah, point, point confirmed, or, oh, okay, maybe it's something a little bit different. And that's what I, I like when I look at 
a lot of these different charts and because there's there are a lot of different kinds because yours are very very different than some of the other people who post on twitter and all the information is very very good but that different visual style i think often differentiates it too because like nobody produces player usage charts like you do it's very very unique to look at yours versus how somebody else produces them and i think that makes your work stand out a little bit more obviously but then you also have other things like the the shot pressures with the waveforms which is interesting normally when i'm seeing that i'm like oh i talked too loud on this audio today i have to tamp that down i screwed, <laughs> the, I screwed up the audio today well this happens now i'm realizing that i'm not exactly a high quality audio editor but as i realized when i started to do play-by-play -play work and i had to explain to somebody this audio sounds terrible and somebody who i'm explaining it to can't hear it i'm like this isn't, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to think like, get out of the mind of an audio editor here for a second. And you can't see these little things of overmodulation that only I would notice. Right. But so well, that's me... go on. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm just thinking going back before you get into the shot type stuff, the, the, which I call because it's supposed to look like waves. The, one of my favorite examples of a time when I was really surprised at a usage of, uh, of a chart of mine was, was one time when I was working for a different team where, um, where I had been giving them the the matchup charts, the ones that show who played against whom in a particular game, and and the coach who was not my main contact there, I didn't actually know him, um, but but through my contact there, the coach said, you know, can you tweak this a little bit and show it to me in a slightly different way, uh, because he was curious to know, because he was chasing certain matchups in certain times, and he wanted to know, am I getting them or not? You know, he had he had ideas. He was thinking to himself, you know. Like he would go into the room after a particular game and think, you know, oh, I really got the such and such line out against the such and such line that I wanted. But he wanted to see it in black and white. You know, he wanted to be able to understand when I feel like, oh, I got it. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean 85% of their minutes? Does it mean 65% of their minutes? Does it mean literally every second of every shift? The And so that was, that added a, an extra layer of gratification to that where I could say, Oh no! I have to I have to tweak this to make it more vivid, so that people can see. You know, some people want to find out, you know, what was going on, but some people know exactly what was going on because they were the ones making the decisions, and they want to know. They want the validation after the fact mm -hmm. of did it go down the way that I tried to make it go down? Because of course, I mean, they coaches understand better than everybody else that that the game is chaotic and and that you only get as much control as you get, and so that was. That was a really fun angle to pursue as well. I, I like these individual player charts, <laughs> the ones where you produce all this great viz of here's what a player did, here's who he was playing with, here's where he got his shots in one particular game, and it's fascinating. I think those are really, really cool because you could say, oh, he had a good game, right? But then you go look at a chart. So I'm looking at Alexander Radulov from the Panthers-Stars game on Tuesday. And oh, well, he had a tremendous game. He had a he, That line was great, and everybody was talking, well, the Panthers couldn't generate anything. I'm like, yeah, they gave up very few shots, but the ones they did give up were great chances. And you see where Radulov's chances were, and you're like, uh, hey, hey, Panthers, what, what are you doing? Which is normally what I say when this happens. But then you see, like, not only that, you see who he played with, who he played against, and that's really, really interesting. And, as, and for me watching i tried to watch as little of that game as possible not just because there was a maryland basketball game on the same time that was far more interested and it was a lot better but because again it, it shows you something that you think of it from another angle that you didn't think about before 
And not only does it give you perspective on one good player on another team, it gives you perspective on your team too. And as I try to think about, you know, what do the Panthers need to do better other than everything, it gives you the, the ability to go and like go, okay, this, this is what I need to see. You know, and that, and that kind of helps when you're trying to, like, if you want to go look and answer a question about a game, you're like, mm, I can't really do it, right? If I have a writing idea and I want to answer a question, then I see it in a, in a form like this. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that helps, right? And I think everybody, again, you can see how easily the Viz is presented and you see all this information contained in this one chart and you go, wow that gives you more information than you could ever think about if you thought about these things individually or tried to go for these things individually. And that Well, sometimes, I mean, that's, of course, the genesis of a lot of the charts is exactly that, where I have a question to answer, where I have something that I don't understand, where I have a job to do for somebody, and, and I can't do it unless I put all the information in front of my brain all at once. You know, you can look it up on this site, on that site, on whatever, you know, I have a database, of course. You can, you can, query all the things you like but then you're just looking at one thing at a time and and my brain is is useless at trying to synthesize these things together unless i can put them next to one another and if you're going to put two things next to one another then if they're just going to be numbers with numerals you're not going to be able to internalize it properly at least i'm not and so that's why i gravitate always towards graphs a lot of people say oh you know why do you do all this work to put them in graph form? You know, is it just for the public? But I, I was making all of these things for myself first so that I could understand. I and those, it, like, oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Those, like, the charts that you mentioned before about the, the so-and-so night at the office charts, I call them in my head. The, it's a great way to call like, them. It's perfect. The, that's office.py. That's the file. The, is so that I can say something like, you know, you'd watch a game and then you would say, boy, so-and-so, I really liked his game. But then you think to yourself, did I really like his game just because he scored the game winner or was he actually good the whole night? I actually don't remember anything about him from the first period. And then maybe, you know, maybe he played well, maybe he played badly, but you don't remember. And so you look up and you say, aha, actually he got outshot, you know, four to 30. But he did score the game winner, so good for him. Are you and... talking about the Anaheim Ducks? <laughs> no. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, I don't win a lot anymore, but they did win last night, but... Whatever the point may be, I want to get to the point of public versus private with this information. And you had a tweet on Saturday. It was the genesis of when I asked you to do this. Uh, was why you keep doing this publicly as opposed to doing it for teams. Because there is now a growing market of people who are getting hired. As we said, everybody from DC Analytics basically was hired by a team. And we lose all of that public information to essentially behind the team wall or behind, I don't want to say behind the iron curtain, it depends on what team you're talking about, but you, you do it publicly, and you had a good explanation for why you want to continue to do it publicly, and, and can you go into why you do it that way? And it's a very, I'm trying to find the word to say, I wouldn't say moralistic, it's taking the high ground in many ways, but it's a, it's a way that you want to do it essentially for the better of the public good, which is an incredible way of thinking about it, especially when you're talking about a field where, it's growing so fast and so rapidly, and some teams are investing really heavily in it. And so there's no doubt that if you wanted to work for a team, lots of teams would want to hire you. Yeah, I, and, and you know, like I've told you a few stories already, like I'm not averse to working for teams, and I have done some work for teams, but I've never worked full-time for a team, and I've never accepted a full-time offer. Uh, I've always, in fact, I've, I've had a handful of extremely amusing interviews where people say things like, you know, what, what kind of bright lines do you have? And I say, well, I have this website, which I don't intend to ever shut down. 
and they're like, we thought you got the website to get this interview. And I, and I have to sort of awkwardly explain actually that, that the website is, is the best thing I've ever done and that I really like it and that it was not nearly some sort of lost leader to get my foot in the door at an NHL team. And which is surprising because, you know, I mean, it's wrong to think this way about the site because it's not that good. But, but the point is, is that I like came from a totally different world in academics where I, I've devoted years and years of my life to an extremely bizarre subfield of mathematics, which is called category theory, incidentally. The, and I, I mean, I have a PhD in that. And I, I had made my peace with the idea that nobody was ever going to do anything useful with anything I did, even if I did it perfectly in my entire lifetime. You know, I had sort of spiritually come to rest with that. And I'd also had a certain, and, and a lot of math degrees will open up a lot of doors to you, maybe ones that you don't like. And, and I had some experience working for, working for a company that um, did some, some work for another company that made um, fighter jets. And, and I was asked to register as an arms dealer by the government, which I found extremely unpleasant. And so for that, and among other reasons, I quit that job. And now but that, it paid me. Now that's a story. Yeah, right. And so I, I mean, I used to joke the I, I was slow doing the paperwork and they were on me about it at work, as you might imagine. And, uh, and I was saying to my, I was joking with my wife, you know, I, they want me to register as an arms dealer at work. And she would say, you know, the only thing worse than being a registered arms dealer is being an unregistered arms dealer. Oh, I was about uh, to say being a sex offender, but maybe, that, maybe that's not right. But Well, she was just trying to get me to fill out the stupid paperwork, which I was avoiding because I'm a baby. And uh, Well, you know. The, but the, the, the point of the story is not about arms deals, it's about the, the fact that that job paid me extremely well, and yet I enjoyed it very little. And... And so, and, and in a previous life, I had said, no, I'm not interested in working for a hedge fund in Manhattan. I want to instead work as a postdoc in a not especially prestigious university in Australia, doing something totally different that hardly anybody will pay attention to that will pay me perhaps a fifth or a tenth as much. And so there's been a lot of decisions along those lines. Where this is, like I said before, kind of sense of vertigo where you have massively contrasting options where the highs and lows of the particular choices are are so different which means that that by the time i got to my mid-30s and i was making decisions about what i would do within hockey um is not not nearly so difficult to say you know for instance i was offered a team job that involved relocation far away from where i live in halifax um for a pittance and and then in fact to their credit the team that offered it to me they knew that that it wasn't nearly enough money um and in fact, they they did get a great hire from that job, um, somebody that they're very happy with at that salary. And but uh, you know, once you put it in those terms, it's very easy to say, actually, I have a happy life here, you know, running this website with my family in this place. And no, I don't want to disrupt myself. In some sense, there's a real young man's game aspect to it, where where if you, especially because the field is so new, if you want to to leave whatever you're doing and join a sports team, then there's a particular thrill there. Even if you're not an athlete, there's still a, you're part of the team. I'm helping. I'm, you know, gonna, gonna win with Especially this group. Especially team you like. Right. And routinely it is because people know more about the teams that they like. And so when they get into those interviews, even if they're sometimes with teams that they don't like, the, if it's somebody like a, a divisional rival, then, you know, it's a team that they know a lot about and that they're willing to, to work on. Also fan allegiances are, by far, even though every single analyst of every kind, everybody who's ever made a website has a fan allegiance, they're absolutely the quickest to go when, you know, when work demands it. And it's also a surprisingly easy thing to do. 
the you know none of the teams I've ever worked for have been teams that I have ever called myself a fan of, and yet, you know, if you're doing data work, it's very easy to just put your nerd hat on and say, well, you know, this guy is is that good at this thing, and you know, here's why, and you know, this person you should identify as a trade target, and it just becomes all work. You know, the that like it's a business line that hockey players trot out like a cliche constantly is, is I mean, there's a certain true. amount of truth to that. Yes, I mean, it is business for everyone, and and they're the first, you know. They're constantly acknowledging it in interviews because it's true. And it is true, even with people in front offices, as much as we talk about fandom, which is completely and totally irrational and makes no sense. And I saw the one tweet, it was like, if I was rooting for a team that's bad, I'd pick another team to root for. And I looked at this person, this tweet, and I'm like, you don't understand how sports work. Sports fandom is not rational in any way. You can't think of it that way. Like, we don't do the thing. And GMs are, of course, the perfect example. I know. Right, because they go from team to team routinely. It's, nobody, I, nobody considers that strange. That's that's par for the course. And again, it happens. It's 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 irrational. You do things for sports teams that you would never do in any other walk of life, and that's like you could walk in all these different jobs. And you you said something that I've always held true, and why I am still very much not as employed as I'd like to be in play by play, which is what I love to do, and why I could have taken jobs probably in other areas and gone into other areas, but I didn't want to do that because I wouldn't have been happy because I want to do this and that's why I still do it because I enjoy it so much. And you, you want to get as much enjoyment out of doing what you do in life is the goal in life for me. And for you, I would assume it's the same thing is to do something you want to do and get paid for it. Even if the pay is less than you get for doing something else, because I can't imagine working for a hedge fund in New York is going to be all that much fun than doing this hockey biz for a sport you really like and informing people in the same way that you're involving hedge funds here. How are we going to buy out this company using some sort of predatory loan or crap like that? Right. Well, like, I mean, my wife told me in as many words that she would divorce me if I took a hedge fund job, and she wasn't joking. Well, there you so, go. So, well, there, there's and, that too. So, and so, I, I, on the one hand, I, I absolutely take your point, and I, I am incredibly grateful for what little success I've had within that niche that I've carved out, where I've, I've made a very deliberate choice to work in the industry that I like, doing the job that I like. In fact, every now and again, I really have to persuade people on Twitter, you know, please don't like, sort of mentally imagine me working for a team du jour who's hiring an analytics person i'm not applying for that job because i have the job that i want this is the job i want and some the, people and for some people it's hard to imagine that you know what i mean because it's like yeah. working for a team should be the pinnacle but in many but, ways for some people it just isn't like that's the same thing part of the, why go on oh sorry part of why it's not the pinnacle like you were just saying is that some teams in fact a number of teams are quite happy to take advantage of that same effect that we were just talking about, of that willingness of people to be paid less than they might be paid in other areas because they're working for especially their own team, but really any team, because now they feel like they're part of the team, the sport. You know, We have this reaction to sports, which is not like our reaction to the other avenues of life. And, and there, you know, for instance, I've been ghosted by teams for insisting on being paid for money, paid for work. And, you know, and, and they just had no conception that somebody might ask for money before they did any work. Which, and, again, like, it can think be, about it, it's and, like, isn't that just basic kind of common knowledge what you do in any other line of work? Well, the thing is, well, I mean, yes and no. It's It certainly should be common knowledge, and there are areas of life where where it is. But if you're a woman, for instance, then you could expect the same problems only twofold. 
the and if you're from a visible minority, especially somebody who's not traditionally associated with hockey, hello, the, right? You can, you can, you can expect that to be threefold or fourfold. The and so those barriers can be can be enormous. And and if if I'm noticing those barriers when extremely few of them sort of notionally apply to me, only only a cursory willingness to put my own financial well-being above my fandom that you know when many people have that and also a bunch of other things temperamental or otherwise mm-hmm. you know the the like that aspect of of the culture in some broad sense of sports culture which includes both front offices and also people talking on public forums like twitter the can really push a lot of people away and and can force people into an amateurism which is not exactly valorous well it forces you to doing things that you wouldn't want to do for less than you'd want to do it for and then you go back and you think about like oh wait what have i been doing this entire time right and and there are a lot of people who are making considerably less money who are putting out good work and who aren't getting the credit for it and who aren't getting jobs for it and and some of that is is unavoidable because the field is new and people are you know, making their own careers and nobody quite knows what anything is worth. But also, I would and, think you know, I, occasionally... what the demand is from certain teams, you know, because you know that certain teams, and you certainly know this more than anybody else, certain teams want this more than other teams do. And that also creates an imbalance. And some teams, especially in this sport, don't have the resources to hire those kinds of people. You know, we can joke right. about the Leafs hiring the guy who did Extra Skater at Camp Sharon and all these people, and then you could talk about, you know, the Carolina Hurricanes being Eric Tolsky. You know, it's like some teams don't have the resources to do it, and that also creates an imbalance. And it is unlike many other sports in that way, because in the NFL, everybody has the resources in order to get this information. So, too, basically in the NBA and Major League Baseball, it's so ingratiated now that the smaller market teams have to use it in order to be successful. But in the NHL, there's a fundamental imbalance into who not only who wants it, but who can afford it. Yeah, and and that, that willingness even of... You know, people talk about the cap constantly, as they should. It, it matters every inch as much as people think it does. But but that off-cap stuff doesn't get talked about enough where, where you know, Ottawa, for instance, is a, a fine example of a, a team that I've paid a lot of attention to over the years where they, they simply don't have the pure dollars to invest at the level that, I mean, the Maple Leafs are the obvious example because they're the second closest team and also they have squillions Canadians. of dollars. Flyers, Rangers, Kings, anybody. You know, yeah, even Panthers, even I the Kings all the time. have been skimpy. Well, I mean, it's because for the Kings, it's hockey. It's as opposed to AEG, who has billions of other things going on in other places. You know, it's about moving money around. But even then, like we talk about hockey, is like there is no bigger difference in any sport other than soccer, which is a completely different animal to haves and have-nots. Because I root for a team that is absolutely a have-not. In hockey, and I have this discussion with Panthers fans all the time. You know, spending all this money on players is great, but what do they spend elsewhere? What do they spend on coaches? What do they spend on scouting? What do they spend on analytics? You know, what do they spend on these other things that are just as important? You know, you can spend up to the cap, but if you can't do the off-cap stuff that's incredibly important, that too is an imbalance, and it comes in mostly, I think, in this sport. As I said, soccer is another animal that doesn't really fit in this particular discussion, but. When it comes to now for you and analyzing, you know, some of this season, let's focus on some of these things and using all that you have done as you create all this visualization and you see it pretty much every day. 
What has been the most surprising thing in this season to you, whether it could be a player, it could be a team, it could be any sort of thing, uh, what has been most surprising to you about this particular season in this sport based on all the information that you have and all that you have seen in everything you've done from the start of the season until now? Uh, so for me, there's no question. The biggest surprise this year is the Islanders. I the I w felt secure in my decision to pan them going into the season. So uh, I thought I thought they would be very bad. It was I mean, it was of all the I mean, I've had various controversial opinions, but but I publicly said I expect the Islanders to be bad. And it was it was unquestionably uh, the popular opinion. You know, everyone I, I respect said the same thing. Family, the Islanders are going to suck and they should tank. And I'm like, it will be good for them to do that. Sure. And, you know, like it wasn't like we didn't know that they had some good players. They and as a rule, the players who have been good have been the people we thought would be good. You know, Bovillier, we expected to be good. Barzell, we expected to be good. The they they have had a handful of players like Anders Lee, who are still on the top line, who've been underrated, I think, by most people their entire career. You know, though, like it's not like they were totally bereft of good players, but you know, in, they lost who I considered their best player in the off season. They weren't that great to start with, and I didn't put that much stock in a coaching change, even if I thought it was for the better. And they were signing players like Leo Komarov and trading for Matt Martin. You're going. Really? Right, and Val Philpola, who apparently gets a new deal, and and you know Casey Zizekas gets a new deal, which is much longer than it should be, and 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 so on and so on and so on. You know, and but it was a good reminder that that the quantity, that the number of mistakes you make is not as important as how bad the mistakes actually are, and many of the mistakes weren't that bad. And uh, and moreover, I think we all underrated sort of just how much uh, a coach like Barry Trotz can make, and and I've certainly. This is one of those things which is a, a big enough project that that the day that you realize you have to do it and the day that you actually do it can be separated by a number of months or years. Oh, yeah. You know, this is like every summer I, I go over all of my important models and think, okay, what what needs to be tweaked and what needs to be overhauled? And uh, and so one of the things that these, this year's Islanders have convinced me is that something serious about coaching in analytics has to be done. There's very, very little um, work that I would consider serious that's been done in this vein, in part because it's extremely difficult. You know, coaches spend most of them, the bulk of their careers with with a particular squad of people. You know, like if you look at, at Joel Quenville, there are lots of people who admire his coaching, um, but he had the good fortune to coach almost all of his career with excellent players. And, and you know, you, you don't want to attribute to coaches what honestly belongs to players, but also vice versa. So, well, and I think it with it's like how do you quantify what Barry Trotz's system has done other than saying, well, Robin Lehner's good now, you know, and that's the that's the next question I guess we can all ask because the Islanders being so good with this system and like the Predators were always like this, but they were never you know, they they had a lot of similar kinds of players. I mean, their 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 best player for years was David Legwand. So, you know, this is not like the Islanders have better players than that. But still, it's like the Islanders should have been bad. With any other coach, they would have been awful. But with Barry Trotz, they're leading the Metro. And you're like, okay, how can we figure out a way to quantify this other than saying, well, Barry Trotz's system is good? So, I mean, that's exactly it. it is, it's not enough for me to just say, well, you know, Trotz is a good coach. I mean, he clearly is a good coach. I think we knew that much ahead of time. But, but I think if you're going to be disciplined about the work that you do, you have to be able to say, you know, these are the things that went right. These are the things that went wrong. 
this is how much this one matters, coaching this much, goaltending that much, shooting luck that much, and, and be able to actually put them all up together and with, with measurements. And of course, this is one of those things which is always fraught. You know, you get into these war debates and you get into to all of these balancing debates, but, but it's unavoidable. And the reason why the debates rage on is because it matters, because you have to understand how these things balance against one another. And with coaching, it's become increasingly clear, and the Islanders are just the focal point of why, that the effect of coaching is, is not is not being captured to my satisfaction. Yeah. Some of these things are, are, are really tricky. So for instance, the, you know, if you, if you asked me the same question a year ago, I would have said the great surprise to me, I would have said something about players and about quality of competition because there was an enormous debate that was raging in the analytics community at that time about how much does it matter who you play against? And, and there were lots and lots of extremely contentious, well-defended, seemingly well-defended positions about how it matters extremely or not at all. The, and, and so that was like my big project this last summer is that I retold all my models to include um, teammate and competition quality because there's, you can't convince anybody that something doesn't matter by just pretending it never matters. The only way that you can actually convince somebody that something doesn't matter is by pretending that it does matter and then proving it. Measuring how much it matters and then saying, look, this is how much it matters. Look at how I did it. You can see that I did it exactly right. You know, here is my methodology. Inspect it at your leisure. You will find no cracks in it. And then when you look at the results that I produced from that, see how this pile has two coins in it and this pile is $300 tall. That's how much it matters. Go away. You know, but you don't, you can't make those measurements unless you divide something ahead of time where you take it as red a priori, that all of the things could matter. And you know, so, maybe it could have come out the other way, 302, mm -hmm. but it didn't. It came out this way. That's why you're going to pay attention to me. And so you have to encompass these ideas in a way which is uncomfortable because you, in your, in your heart of hearts, you suspect like it's probably trash, but you can't, you will prejudice your experiment if you go into the, the devising of it that way and so we're gonna have to do we i mean me i'm gonna have to do something well, people will do it in different ways to you but in this case since we're talking to you right and and so that's part of and that's where the community aspect comes into it right is that like i i i have the pleasure that enough people pay attention to me now that if i say put to you if i say on twitter if i say in in other forms you know i'm gonna go hard about trying to figure out coaching this summer that will provoke some discussions where where I hope everyone, including me, will learn, okay, this is a red herring. This is a pitfall that's going to come up. Oh, I didn't realize that was going to be a problem. How are we going to deal with that? And then as we all try to actually solve these problems, you know, we'll do it collectively. We'll do it well. And at least one of us will come up with something worth going on with. Uh, there, there's a science aspect there that's really nice. Well, yeah, science is all about experimentation. Figuring but it's it also out. community, right? It's people who talk to one another and who say, okay, this which, is... Which is different than, obviously, academia, which is a lot of individual work. You do work with colleagues, but a lot of it is your own individual stuff, and then you present it to the community, and then you get feedback. This is more, you know, community goes over ideas and say, okay, here's how we can do this, and then somebody goes about and applies those ideas. That's the difference, I think, between what you're talking about in academia from the little that I know about it, and then this. Yeah, even I think even traditional academia has a lot of those qualities that I was just mentioning that you were just mentioning too. That that like oh, this is the angle I'm going to take on this, or this is what I'm going to have to be wary of when I do that. And and people who are who are kind and judicious realize that even their rivals who are working on the same thing as them, who are trying to get the credit for the same things as them, are 
are still, you know, putting forth those good faith arguments all the time. And so you learn quickly to distinguish between people who who are on your side, even if they are racing you, versus people who are who are actually not interested in furthering the field, who are who are interested in tearing down your not just your ideas, not just your accomplishments, but your whole motivations. You know, they, they really don't care about trying to solve the problems that you're trying to solve, that they don't think that your methods could ever accomplish these things. And so people, like th those kinds of criticisms, you learn quickly how to read the one from the other. Yes. Uh, I would love to see this coaching thing about Bob Bugner because no one likes him anymore. And I can tell you empirically and just in just eye eyeballing at why his system doesn't work. But I'd love to see it proven in numbers why it doesn't work. So, Well, this I, is one of the curiosities to me is that you, coaches as a rule, like taken across the entire league, are broadly disliked. And, and I mean, I don't know anything about whether Bugner is one of the better or worse coaches. But when I see I have a, a large enough not following the opposite of that the people i follow cover a sufficiently broad spectrum that i see that maybe 70 to 80 percent of people are dissatisfied with their team's head coach i think so, that comes from the other idea which i've always talked about as a broadcaster as i said like the homerism thing is something i always kind of bristled against because it's like well yeah i mean you work for the team you're pumping their tires but in many ways i'm like wouldn't the biggest fans be the ones that are most openly critical of their team like, I, mean, I, I describe myself as a Panthers fan. I cover them from afar as much as I say I like them. And I roast them all the time for things that they sure. do. And oh, that, man. to me, Somebody... and, and the casual fan isn't going to do that. You know, the casual fan isn't going to fly a banner over the rink saying, Roe must go. The diehards <laughs> are going to do that, which did happen. And then when everybody, the story of that happening after that awful 16-17 season is Craig Custance then tweeted about it. And he was like, I didn't realize the natives were this restless. And I joked that he should have listened to this podcast because I went on multiple <laughs> rants about why this was awful and how Tom Rowe was a human meat shield for what they were doing. And he was doing it really badly. And you can go listen to that podcast. It's probably somewhere out there on the wilds of the Internet now. So I don't need to rehash that. But it's like, you know, and, and I think the only people that like their coaches maybe are the Lightning and Islanders fans. And maybe maybe the Flames fans, too, like their coach. Probably there's the a chunk of there's a chunk of Leafs fans who really like their coach. Yeah. Although there's also a chunk of Leafs fans who really don't like their coach, so it, it, it had well, I, I pointed out because of the because as a Panthers guy and somebody who follows what it is, I mean, almost no one likes Bob Hoogner now, and I would like to see empirical evidence other than you know just saying, well, hey, they take a lot of point shots that get blocked and turn into odd man rushes the other way. I'd like to see more numbers that other than saying, well, here's how their shot rates differ from their scoring chance creation. You know, that's one way of viewing it but then i always like other ways of doing it because coaching matters but we all know it matters but we haven't found a way in numbers to kind of quantify how it matters we can qualitatively well, I, state that but and and part of why part of why i'm interested in that is is not just the the pure thrill of trying to figure out a thing i don't understand which is which is definitely my primary motivation but also when you see situations like i said a second ago like you know a comfortable two-thirds to three-quarters of the of the league's fans seem to dis dislike their head coach's decisions, you know, that they can't all be right. The in, there's some like, you don't know which ones of them are right and which ones of them are wrong, but you can see in aggregate that they must be wrong. And so that's interesting from a purely quantitative point of view, because you know, that means I, I know I have an angle. I know I have a way in to try to get something out of this, but it's also interesting from a, a sociological point of view, you know, what, what is it that makes a team, liked what is it that makes a head coach liked? what is it that makes a player a fan favorite versus 
versus you know somebody who's disliked and it, it, right well it isn't it isn't just as simple as you know these players are the ones who help you win because fan favorites are routinely the very best players on a team the but also schmucks and yeah. and and also people who are great are hated by fans as well as fourth liners who ought not to be playing are hated by fans so you know it's not it, it, like those subtleties are are something that you won't tease out with analytics but are part of why the job is an interesting job to me because I get to explore a lot of that stuff and and talk with people about it and all of those conversations if you mine them if you mine is maybe not the word if you just look reflectively on them you you have pathways there that open up your work and that make life more interesting as you work well isn't it fascinating because sports in a sociological context is so visceral you know maybe you get it with saying well your favorite band sucks but you know with sports if you if, like if you attack someone's team or a player they like it's like attacking them and that's the other thing about it that always fascinates me and why we well, have... especially yeah. especially the word visceral like you just used i mean that's like it's, in some sense we it's instinctive yeah, we... it's 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 something you can't control it's subconscious and it, it's visceral and instinctive are the best words that i could use to describe it because it just comes out and you can't control it you know what i mean like that's why i'm saying like to bring it off the top of the podcast it's like the Panthers trading Jonathan Huberto, I mean, he's a very good hockey player, and everybody really knows that, but the saying, like, when I saw the rumors that he was going to be traded, my first thought was, what the hell is going on? Why is this team being the stupidest thing that I could possibly describe? And then, you know, because everybody likes him. And, like, and, and even as somebody who is ostensibly a journalist and a broadcaster, and you need to cover things as objectively as you can, I can objectively say Huberto is a player that is really beloved by the fan base and also is a really good hockey player that the Panthers, if they traded him, would be incredibly stupid to do so. You know, as opposed to, I always look at Panthers fans saying, well, we need more grit and toughness, so I like Michael Haley. And I could go out and say, guys, really? As opposed to, you know, other <laughs> things like I'm saying, like, uh, we're putting players in better positions to succeed. You know, sure, it is very visceral and very instinctive and that is that is the element of sports when you work in it from different angles in my case covering it and telling stories and you looking at data and looking at how to answer questions we don't know how to answer it all comes back to this visceral field that is highly irrational and how much we care about it and why we care about it and why we invest so much in time and money into it which is well, always and, and fun sociologically to answer those questions or try to answer those questions yeah, and I think I think progress can be made on them, even if if you know, quote unquote, answering them is probably impossible. And like Huberto is a fine example too. The you know, on the one hand, he's an extraordinarily good player, and it's no surprise that he's beloved by many fans. But on the other hand, he's nowhere close to the best player in the league. And so, on its face, just uh, Huberto is going to be traded. Rumor, it, perhaps depending, it might be very good for Florida. You don't know who's coming back in return. You know, oh, McDavid is ridiculous. I have an but, idea. <laughs> just... Yeah, right. Okay, so. And and that's like you know you interpret all of these things within the context of what you're familiar with, but but the there's there's like a cerebral side which says you know I you know I can't evaluate any trade until I know what the other side of it is, and, and then there's that's, that's there's that more visceral side which just says why are you even thinking about this? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. My my first and, thought comes in when it comes in with the idea of him possibly being traded to get a player in Panarin or Bobrovsky as a rental who you might not sign, which is highly stupid. But then I saw a rumor last night on Twitter like the Panthers might be interested in Tyson Berry, and I went, oh okay, that's interesting. And then you think about it in another way. I want to get into some other questions before I let you go. 
the first one is on DataViz itself and how people can, as Tommy said to me when I asked him, what did you want to ask Micah for this podcast? How can you become more data literate? And I always think that people on the whole are more visual learners than, you know, book learning or learning by words, right? I think that that adds another element to why what you do is so important because visuals make very complex things a lot easier to understand. But DataViz as a field is something that most people have no association with and honestly probably don't understand that much of. And you're, well, the preeminent expert in this field in, the, in a hockey context. So in terms of becoming more data literate, how average casual fans can become more data literate, what is your suggestion on how they can do that and what they should look for to do that? Well, the most obvious way is is not the most fun way, um, which is to ask a lot of questions. The, it's, it's the same advice that I give to students when I teach, and it's difficult because asking questions exposes your own lack of knowledge, and that's no fun. The, it, it puts you in a position of vulnerability, and especially on a social media platform that goes after stupidity the instant it's spotted. Asking questions is hard to do. Now, it's it is difficult. easier for me because my, my career field is all about asking questions. And for me, it's always about asking the right questions. The right questions can get you the right answers. But, you know, that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do is asking questions. Because and part of the difficulty is that the script can flip so quickly. On the one hand, if you ask a stupid question, you look stupid. But on the other hand, if you ask a question in a way that's nasty, now you're the jerk. You're the bad guy, given somebody who's, you know, putting out good work for you now you're the person who's who's making a nuisance of themselves why are you asking all these questions why can't you just figure it out and so if you can you know there's a certain like if you thread that needle in between i'm going to make myself look stupid and i'm going to make that guy look stupid if you can find your way in between that to a place which where the conversation is in good faith then every now and again you will you will find i mean some people are are dreadful at taking criticism and some people are good and some people are are good at explaining what they've done and some people are bad but as a rule if you ask questions in fact even the act of typing out a tweet or an email that says what does this mean as you write it out you will discover oh wait no i get it now and then you'll delete the tweet and you'll feel great about your life and no one needs to ask any questions at all but until you actually you know thinking about it is not quite as good not quite as efficient as actually doing it even if even if you don't click send at the end, the, and of course, even if you have to, if you do, then a number of times you'll get answers that say, oh, I hadn't thought of that like that. The reason you're asking this question is because you didn't see that I did this other thing and you didn't see it because I didn't make it clear. Yeah. And and so sometimes you'll, I mean, you'll get this surprisingly often. And so one way or another, you'll figure out what's going on as you do that work especially because the person who puts out the work is almost always going to help you figure it out. They want you to understand. I mean, if I'm putting out something and you don't get it and you ask me an honest question, I absolutely want you to understand. That's my job. I, I got uh, this rarely, oddly enough. Somebody asked me in relation to one of my attendance tweets and said, how do you find this? And it was like from somebody six followers, never heard of before. And I said, it was politely asked. And I said, here's how you do it. And he was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Thank you. This is really helpful. And that's a really simple thing. It's not on the same way of asking, like, how does this viz work vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But if you come at it from an element of not necessarily vulnerability, but if you ask it from an element of genuine curiosity, I think most people can figure out what's a loaded question and what isn't, you know, or what you're asking. If you're asking a question, to get a specific answer, you know, 
if you're asking a question from a genuine place of curiosity, why is this happening? How can I learn or how can I view this differently? People are going to be willing to help you because in a community where we're still all trying to figure it out and even the best minds don't have the answers yet, that is a, it's a simple thing to do, right? If you just come in from a position of what can I do to learn more and how can I help people give them different perspectives, then you're going to get a lot of people willing to work with you. And it is hard to thread the needle, but if you do it, you realize there's a lot that can be gained from balancing it. And the best people in hockey analytics world are those that balance it really, really well. And I think we have a lot of people now who are balancing it a lot better than we used to because the field was so put down upon for a while that everyone was really defensive. And you can understand why that was right. And a lot of what was done was to prove people wrong. But now we have people who are doing it like you who are doing it to say, I have these questions that I want to answer them and I want to make everybody in this sport, you know, help them answer questions that we all want to answer in the same way. You know what I mean? Right. And that those has evolved. Right. And that instinct that like, I'm going to prove y'all wrong. That instinct is, is a powerful one. That's a very strong motivator. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, you gotta, you gotta go with what you got. And, and very, very often I've used that to keep me working on something that I might've given up. But, but you have to sublimate that into a into a new presentation that's not oh by the way remember that time that you were wrong and I was right I'm going to remind you right now you know that that you need to to turn that into a drive instead of turning that into a, a cheap way to score points you have to make it you have to make it the difficult at the end yes exactly and and of course one of the things that I that I've increasingly taken on explicitly in my work is that a lot of people who are working from a data angle get a lot of pushback, not, not because of how good their work is, but only because they take the attitude that they know something that other people don't. You know, that's, this is one of those things where if you, if you take on that posture, when you do know something that other people don't and you're willing to share it with them, that's creditable. But if you don't know something and you pretend like you do, then that's obviously terrible. You know, the, in, in religious contexts, those people are called heretics. We've, we have a, a long, long history of, of demonizing such people and yep. with, with more or less good reason, right? People who pretend to be able to teach but who cannot teach and should not teach are harming people. And, and so that's, that's another angle, too, where you have to, as a community, you have to say, okay, you look, you cannot be saying these things to those people. That's wrong. Like, you have to, like, police within a community. Who is a snake oil salesman? That's a phrase not, I've used on this podcast quite often for specific reasons. Not going to answer that. If you were long term, <laughs> this is not about you. This is about another Panthers topic <laughs> that I think you could probably figure out what it is. But maybe that's a time for after the podcast we could talk about that because well, well. I mean, I mean, it's it's obviously extremely touchy. You have to like on the one hand, you you don't want to you don't want to ruffle any more feathers than you have to, but sometimes you have to. This right, is sometimes. always what I said, like, and it comes from me being, you know, very active and, like, wanting to be active at LGBTQ issues in hockey and it being a place that is really, really bad and me coming from a perspective of sometimes, well, sometimes the feather's nice, but other times the hammer's a lot nicer and it's more cathartic. So I always say sometimes, well, if you don't want to let me in, I might break the door down for you and or, you know, well, if you're not going to change here, hockey, then someone's going to change it for you and might as well be me. Probably not the best yeah. line of thought, but when you're dealing with something as visceral as that and something as, you know, important to you as that. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a, a long historical precedent for that. You know, oh, nothing, nothing I mean, actually gets changed. All the time. And, and, and if you want to actually 
change things, then, you know, there's there's a certain amount of resistance which comes from power that will only be changed when it has to change. And so if you bring about those conditions where it must change, then that's how you actually improve things. And that's and so how I, it's worked with this field, too. Not to interrupt you again, but it kind of, no, no, like, we proved it, at, we, like, you guys proved it on, on macro scales in many ways, like saying, oh, you know, the 2013-14 Leafs being the prime example of it, or maybe the abs the year after, was like, we know this team is not actually as good as people say they are because of X, Y, and Z. And then it was proven. And then that was the door of entry. And now the, the bar of entry is a lot lower, and we're doing it on much more fine-tuned scales as opposed to something like that. And that's kind of how it is sometimes, especially in a sport like hockey, because there was no other sport like hockey when the barrier of entry from the people inside the sport is so preposterously high. And that's not just from the people, you know, signing the players and making the decisions. It's also for the fans, too. It's why the, as I was talking about with the, uh, uh, another podcast I was doing, the Tony X thing from a couple of years ago, which was yeah. so stark because of hockey's barrier of entry. And they were mentioning that vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, talking about being a hockey fan. And I was like, it was one of the best nights on Twitter because for, you know, the great hockey fan in me, there's like, I want people to know about the sport. But then again, I don't like the gatekeeping that happens. You know, the hashtag, please like my sport stuff, which happens every night during the Super Bowl. And somebody didn't, I, I made one of those tweets during the Super Bowl, like comparing baseball versus football. And I said, the please like my sport crowd's having one hell of a night. And he was like, he, and he clearly didn't get it. And I'm like, I'm not going to pursue this line any further. I, I clearly touched a nerve with somebody. You know what I mean? And that's like, and that's like, that's the funny thing that happens when you, when you, uh, when you go, but particularly in this sport, because we are as a hockey fandom defensive, really defensive yes. about the sport. Sometimes no, there's no getting around it. For not good reasons. And so one of the, like, to try to wrap those ideas together is that I, I make a conscious effort in my, when I present quantitative work in public, I make a conscious effort, even though I, I do posture myself as an authority, I do try not to open my mouth until I feel like I have something that I am certain about, reasonably sure about, or something that I think is at least interesting. But I, I try to subvert a lot of the dominant paradigms for, you know, even if that's a little bit buzzwordy, by by taking on a posture which is less combative than it might be, even though I don't, you know, I don't tell people that I think things I don't think. And so, for instance, if I put out a, something on Twitter about some quantitative take about some player that they're, you know, they misplayed in their particular usage or something, and somebody gives me a lot of stick about, oh, you know, oh, you're full of shit or, you know, not watching the games or whatever it might be. I try to, to display a, an extra effort of conciliation precisely because I'm not from a group that is trying to barge into hockey that is trying to say, you know, you've treated me badly. I insist on my presence in this space because instead I come from a group which is, which is routinely permitted into hockey spaces. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I've the you know I don't, it's funny because I don't actually know how to skate. I'm not a hockey player. I'm neither do I. I'm, I've skated a couple of times and looked like an idiot. So right, and so so I mean that's that's exactly where I am too, right? Where I've like I like to fall down. The and so I'm not I'm not a hockey player, but I do fit the part. You know, people who look like me are the people who are filling the NHL, and so and I mean like I might have a different sexuality, but you know I'm some young white guy who comes off as pretty masculine if you want to sure. use those terms and that would so be the stereotypical hockey fan 
as as we I was referring to some idiotic thing on my Twitter from a couple of nights ago about why hockey fans are not you know able to speak English or can't be black in relation to the Panthers. But let's not go into that. <laughs> but it just sure. So, up again. <laughs> but the point is that that there's like there's different roles within a society within that community which are part of how you pursue even extremely technical work. And so if I was if I was from a marginalized community, I would presumably take a totally different attitude. But because I'm from the community that I am from, because I do look the part, because, you know, famously in stories I tell my friends in one in one job interview with a with a GM at the very end, just as I was about to leave, they said, I'm sorry, what is your hockey background? And I, I had no idea what to say. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know how to skate. And everybody laughed, you know, and maybe if I'm not a straight white guy who looks exactly the part. Maybe it's not a laugh moment. Maybe it's the thing that sinks the interview. So, you know, because I come from that point of view, I make an extra effort to try to subvert some of the ways that people talk about hockey, where I'm trying to be... Expectations is hard to do. And it's... (laughs) And so that's why I think you have to be conscious. Oh, and and, and it's... And I think that that's everything right now is I think that's just society. I was... uh, I was... When you were talking about privilege and subverting those things, and I was talking about, oh, I was going to use the word zeitgeist, which is where everybody loves to use right now. (laughs) Right? It's buzzword for everybody. I used it making fun of a horrible Esquire piece a couple of days ago, but I used that as a a joke about that, you know. But it's, it's like... I don't know how much you know about LeVar Ball and, and his, his son who plays for the, the Lakers. And yeah, he wants you just to, a little. This, I mean, unfortunately, we know more about it than we like to, but he used the phrase stay in your lane, which was to women in basketball, which was obviously horribly sexist and terrible. But my line is, is when I use that phrase, I say, I know what I'm good at, and I know where I have the ability to say I'm authority on X, Y, and Z, and I can prove it using these credentials. I would say, you know, if we're talking about postmodern art, for instance, or post-impressionist art, I would never talk about it authoritatively because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You know, however, if there's something that I feel like I know about, I will say authoritatively and I can prove it. You know, that's what I mean by stay in your lane. It's like I know what I where I not belong, but I know what I am good at, what I'm strong at. And this is how I can use those strengths to inform other people. You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of what you're doing in the subverting expectations and subverting tropes kind of way, using privilege to get around things that otherwise might be barriers of entry for others. And, you know, in many ways, staying in your lane in that context is good while it's also not good. But for me, that's kind yeah, of... Yeah, it's very tricky to walk, and I don't pretend like I do it very well. I think it's but... hard for people to balance it. And I think a lot of people don't get in many ways and it's hard to that life is in many ways about balance it isn't absolutes and hockey is in still many ways a black and white sport we have not yet really tapped into gray areas so this is kind of doing that but you know the balancing act of doing these things of of you know belaying you know privilege but subverting it in ways my friend brock mcgillis who i've talked we talked to this podcast being the only professional former professional hockey player out as gay and how he would talk about how he can come and talk to these people because he comes off the part as a hockey player while he's also subverting tropes in other ways is very very hard to do and hard to balance and it's hard to do in every walk of life but in a hockey context you do that we all do that uh, i want to get to a couple of other questions before we leave and sure. the one big one is certainly the player tracking and what your opinion of it is and what you want out of it because i asked Corey snyder about it 
and what it is. And now we can all make jokes about how the how SAP doesn't get it right and how the information on the NHL's website is bunk, whatever. But there's a lot of information that could be coming here. And for to be honest, I don't really care about betting on is Alex Ovechkin going to skate faster than 21 miles an hour in this breakaway. That doesn't mean as much to me so much as, you know, how am I thinking about it from how can we learn more about hockey? So for you, in the data that you might get from such information and how you could use it to help better inform what you do, what are you looking for in this new player tracking when it comes? So I'm, if I'm going to be optimistic about what I'm going to get, my first hope is that we're going to improve goaltender evaluation hugely. I, for Both for goalies and for skaters, I think it's going to get way worse before it gets better. The, we're going we're gonna to half drown in data, even if we only get a little bit, we're going to half drown in stuff. You know, I don't think we've, I don't think we've finished getting what we can get out of what we already have right now, you know, let alone tracking data. But, but if, for instance, I had an easy way of knowing where every player was on the ice at every moment, I could make a thing which could tell me how often and how much a goalie was screened on shots. And all of a sudden, if I had a proxy for screens, then I'm going to put that into my goalie model, and I'm assuming that that's going to be a very substantial change in the way that we evaluate goaltenders. Uh, more generally, more more difficultly, we're going to look at how the puck moves before it gets shot. And so specifically with the context of goaltender evaluation, say, well, you know, the reason why he had no chance in the shot is because he had no choice but to respect that pass, which was reasonable because that player was in the spot where he could have received it. You know, whereas another time, you know, he's much more square to this shooter because there is no player there or because the player who ought to be there is two steps behind where he should be. And we can see that because the tracking data gives us 10-foot resolution or one-foot resolution or whatever it is. You know, so I think the, the immediate impacts are going to be in goaltending where where analytics is is fighting. I'm talking in Seattle about goaltending, and I feel like I've made some progress, but it's still very small progress. It's and I feel like once we get some tracking data... It's such a hard thing to do, and it's obviously and, so important. Yeah, and I think we're going to make some real strides. I mean, obviously, we've tried anyway because it's so important, despite our, our relative failings. And I think there we're going to... another sport of the major four that has a position like goaltending in it's it's like but even in soccer it, it's like how important is a good goalie well it is but you're facing a much bigger net and a much bigger field and the game is a lot less random you know like well and, and of course state of effect of Yaroslav Halak doing what he did to the capitals like how can we define that and how can right, we and find a way to define it in another way you know like I could say well the Panthers have bad goaltending but how can I say that in a way that doesn't say you know oh his save percentage is bad you, yeah, you want to make something a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more useful for both for fans as well as for decision makers to go on with. And so I think that's going to be the first fruits. Then after that, we're going to get into, um, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that all of the things that we, like, it's not going to be a revolution in analytics in the sense that we're not going to, I don't think, we're not going to completely change our minds because we already know the sorts of things that matter are already captured in the data that we have, you know, goals, most obviously going back for decades and shots going back for a decade, you know, we know that those things are important. And so everything that we learn is going to be embroidered texture on that. And so I think, I think you know, for me, it's we're like, not going to accept. How, oh yeah. I think for, for me, it's like, how important is shot location? How many, you know, how many passes can we get before shots? Like, can we use this to define expected goals? 
which is a stat that I think in soccer is pretty predictive because of the kind of sport it is. But in hockey, I'm not sure how good it is yet because there are so many more things that go into chance creation in hockey on a smaller space in a faster game than soccer, for instance. You know, that's another thing. Like, are we better with expected goals? Are we spedded with, you know, with passing too? Like, what kind of passing is good passing? All these things. Right. So much that you could get into. We could be here for three hours talking about what we would hope to get in this player tracking information. We don't have that time. The point is that we're going to move from suspicion to knowing. And and we all have our suspicions on coaches, you know, people who've been playing and coaching the sport since forever have extremely strong suspicions about what it is matters. And and they convey that as best they can. And once we have measurements, then we're going to be able to validate a number of them and invalidate some others. And and that there's going to be a process that's going to take a number of years, I think, before we have any new ideas. So, you know, we're just going to go over the old ones. What you're saying is then when we have information, if this comes out next year in November and December. So the immediate assumptions made on that information is probably not going to be ones you should base your life around. Oh, things are going to get worse, much worse. People are going to quote all manner of stupidity and some of it will be believable, including including by respected people are going to put out are going to be misled The there are. You know, anytime you have this huge swath of data, there are going to be patterns in that data that are purely random. And they're going to look non-random because there's going to be, you know, a couple months of a particular thing. And then we're, you know, for instance, we're, we're still like thrown by um, back-to-back safe percentages the, where people did a big study on thousands and thousands of shots that were all from a couple of years. And in those two years, goalies who had played the night before played much much worse and then but it turns out if you look at the years three years before and three years after that you don't see the same pattern at all and it looked really strong thousands of shots showed this particular pattern and yet at every scale you can be fooled and so you're going to have to go over stuff again and again if that's happening to us now with much less data it's going to be the same thing only much worse when we've got lots and lots of data and so we're all going to be going around in 2020 saying well you know, this is nice to have this new data, but in 2025, there's going to be a lot of people saying, wow, remember that time I was super wrong about that thing? And everybody's going to, you know, hopefully we're going to nod sagely and say, you know, those are the days and not have a bunch of people thrown out of the field. This is this is true. But I think, does it lower the barrier of entry maybe for some of this? It, it kind this, of, in some sense, it raises helpful. it though, because you have to work on it so much. Right, the technical load to actually process it is going to be higher. You know, you need to pay money for servers. You need to be able to write more code. You might need a small team of people instead of just a hobbyist. It's it's going to go both ways. Well, and that's where we get to again haves and have nots in NHL yeah. teams. And some some people can process that information. And there's also like, what form is it coming in? Who is it giving us? Is the NHL actually giving us all this information, or do we have to mine this data from the William Hill site? You know, because they want to use it to say, is Alex Ovechkin going to score a power play goal from the OV time spot, uh, OV spot on a one timer plus one fifty, no minus one ten, yes. You know? Right, and so if if that's like on the one hand, that's really awkward because sports books aren't going to just willingly let data go out to the world when it could be profiting them, but also because they have a strong financial interest in data being accurate, we might see knock on improvements in other areas, like we might see injury. Um, revelations become more forthright, more like the NBA instead of like uh, middle body, upper body 
body injury. Or he's just out for something. Right. So, quote unquote sidelined. You know, we might there might be improvements there that accrue to everyone even because gamblers are involved, even if you personally don't care about gambling. And so that there's gonna be a give and take there too. It, it it's it's a can of worms, but it's an important can of worms. There's just so I mean, many layers of it that are coming in with this. It, it, it's not Pandora's box, but and even then, we're going to ask all these new questions that come from the ones that we now have answered. Yeah. Because I guarantee you there's going to be something that, you know, someone will get from all this new information, and it will be the next big question in this sport because, listen, when you're asking questions about math and you're asking questions about data, there's always new questions that are going to be asked. That's how it all works, and that's how every field works. And you're going to be wondering, oh, they, well, well, what's the next frontier after that? And so I'm, I'm curious to see what it ends up becoming because there's so much that could happen with it. But again, it's also and, the NHL. We might not get any of this information. It might just be kept with teams and sports books. Who well, knows? I'm encouraged by the fact that the existing information that is public is the bulk of what the league collects. You know, it's not like they're keeping, I mean, with the current real-time system, not only do they release most of it to the public, but they have done since more or less the institution of the system. Which so, is rare for the league, and it's good that they do it. That's right. And and so I, I feel like it's important to not be too pessimistic, even though, especially in the first instance, I do expect that that books are going to try to keep it under wraps. But certain amounts of it, I think, will get out. The The PR, I think the league realizes that there is a PR benefit to letting people like me take their raw data and put our own uncompensated time into making it look great. You know, that that builds engagement, that makes people happy, that that drives um, sales of all things NHL. And as long as we can Maybe cultivate that spirit, I'm optimistic. Agree with you for that sport. Maybe the old school hockey writers won't agree with you in this case, but I, I agree. That's okay. I, I know you, you don't necessarily have to think about it. I want to ask you a very few brief hockey question for you. You do like the Ottawa Senators, so I do want I do. to ask because or, – or do you still anymore? I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, certain recent events have made it harder and more painful, but but I do still. Well, I mean, listen, I, I've seen what the – again, I, the kindred spirit of the Ottawa Senators in the U.S. is the Florida Panthers, and they're very, very similar organizations in terms of constraints and arena issues and things like that, so I, I, I sympathize. So now I have to ask you, in your uh, hockey opinion uh, and all that you see, uh, what should the Senators do with what they have to do with Duchesne and Stone and Dezengel and, you know, to kind of keep something up because they're not going to have a first-round pick, and right now they'd have the highest odds of giving that pick the Avalanche, which I know hurts to bring up, but I'm not doing it in a loaded context. I'm just <laughs> saying it's happening. But you know, what I think the Senators should do. Well, I think, I, I think that the immediate problem with the Senators is that they can't continue – in any way with the owner that they currently have now. I think the owner is, is by far the most difficult position to change and they need a new one. There's there's no way, even if they can somehow miraculously find ways to keep the talent that they have this year, which they probably won't um, and, and perhaps shouldn't, they, uh, they won't ever be a seriously competitive team until they have a new owner. They'll occasionally fluke into deep playoff runs like they did a couple years ago and, uh, and that's that's the ceiling that they'll get. And, and because on the one hand, there is a lot of randomness and you have to be able to take your draft picks when you get them and then take your chances at competing when you get them too. You also need to build continuously every year. You need to be improving. And, and you know, if you're not improving, you're, 
your immediate chances, you need to be improving your draft stock, improving your pipelines. And and the willingness to to spend is so incredibly absent from the senators that they won't ever get from, even once their natural talent returns them to being an average team, they won't move from average to above average because they're not willing to spend. The the It's not even a question of willingness. I don't think there's an ability to spend money at this point because the owner has so little. And, and so many... There is a new arena with old owner? No, that helps, but I don't think it fundamentally changes the issue. I think there has to be a new owner, even with a new arena, before they can actually succeed. Okay. Um, and, and part of the trouble, of course, is that when you look at it in that top-down fashion, then then there really aren't any moves that that Dorian can make that could possibly... Supposing I imagined he was capable of making them, which I don't. Well, the, yeah. The, like that, and, and so, uh, you know, you need to have the ownership to be able to get the personnel, which you need to be able to have the coaching decisions, which you need to be able to possibly win the games. Like that, uh, I, I re- unavoidably look at things in this top-down way and it's difficult to say, well, you know, what if I were the GM? Well, if I were the GM, I would have an impossible task because I have an unreasonable criminal owner. Well, There's really no way around it. As I say, Ottawa Senators, Florida Panthers, kindred spirits. I'm not saying that, that the Panthers' ownership is like that, but ownership is at the root cause of everything in sports. And to say that they're independent of that is, you can't. Ownership matters more than anything else because it sets everything. And right. I, I've said that with, with Florida. It's different. They do have money. I just wonder whether they spend it. You know, We don't know exactly what they are doing in terms of money that they lose. Like, But we know. I know for a fact the Panthers lose money. I know, you know the Senators probably don't make a lot. I don't know if they break even necessarily. But, I mean, they get more from their local media deal than the Panthers do, obviously. They get more sponsorship because of the Ottawa Senators. But they have similar issues. And ownership definitely does matter. Is there any way that you could even quantify the impact of ownership? That's another. I thing. think it's. I think that's a, an incredibly difficult question to to actually put down in in figures. And and the other thing too, of course, is that is that it's easy to take an analytics-y point of view, if you like, about a GM's moves or about a coach's moves or about a player's particular decisions on the ice. You can use to say, you know, that leads to winning, that leads to losing, and, and you know, and in this much quantity, it leads to those things, but. You know, it's it's a totally different question. You say, well, you know, you're running your corporation to make a profit, uh, and I, and I don't think you should. I think you should run it instead to win Stanley Cups at a massive cost to you personally. You know, that's that's an unusually like I have no particular sympathy for billionaires, but that's a totally different kind of thing to say than to say your third line center should be your second line center and should get sex more minutes per night. Well, especially yeah. because when you when you look at in this sport particularly, like this isn't the NFL where that league is the cash register. Every team makes money. It's just a varying degree of how much money you make. You know, in this league, there are the teams like the Leafs that are swimming in cash, and then there are teams like the Senators, the Panthers that are not. And you buy into those teams as vanity projects in many ways. And like, say, like Eugene Melnick and Vinny Viola you know, we're not getting scrutinized in the same way that they get scrutinized when you buy into a sports team and you buy into something that taps into something deeper than just money. And I don't know how you quantify that, but... That's part of why the field is an interesting field to work in in a public way and not just in a I'd like to be an employee of your corporation sort of way. Where, because sports teams don't have that, like, 
I mean, on the one hand, we say it's just a business and it unquestionably is a business. But on the other hand, they're also social institutions. And we civic institutions we, too. Yeah, we, we collectively engage with them on a civic way. You know, mayors are making bets about about who's going to win particular games because, you know, we don't do that about who's going to post the better profits between such and such a corporation in the potash sector and such and such another corporation. Like they don't, those companies don't fulfill any aspect of that civic role. But but we as a people like to do that, like to invest specific industries, sports, like for that reason. You mentioned music a long, long time ago, which is the only thing which comes close, which we, you know, we created it for that purpose. It kind of happens with movies, but they're distant a little? in a way, depending on what it is. You know, with, with media, it happens like that, but it's still very distant, you know, as opposed to sports, which is, I, I, I again, when you're into sports, you can't get out of it. And for people who are not into team sports like this or other sports like this, it just doesn't, it's not something that you can comprehend. Because like, if you think about it rationally, your brain's going to fall out. Because you're like, okay, why are you doing this? But you can't think about sports rationally. And so there's billions and billions of dollars in this very irrational business where people do not act rationally, all in the goal of winning something where there is very little financial benefit to winning. Well, and of course, the other thing, too, is that is that the winning itself is is understood, even by people who understand it extremely well, understood to be extremely transient. You know, the instant the Capitals won the Stanley Cup last year, we were all collectively moving on to, okay, what's up next year? Only you know, the, the NBA, yeah. who the title this year is already well decided, and then we're all worrying about what's <laughs> going to happen with Kevin Durant, because they're <laughs> well, that's the joke I have about the NBA. The NBA is about the league of three years in the future. You know, other leagues are about what's going to happen two days from now. The NHL is always, is, is the NHL is a very interesting league because it's the only ones that I follow that is intensely about the present almost all the time. There are questions about the future, but they don't mean the same as like the NBA where the questions are almost always about the future. Like there is yeah. very little consideration to the present in the NBA. And that's why I find the NBA right now particularly kind of boring because it's like, well, I don't really care about the future. It's interesting, but in a soap opera-y kind of way or like, Oh, I have to wait a week for the next Game of Thrones episode. Like, who are they going to kill off next? You know, like right. that the NHL is not like that. And that's why, to me, I connect more with this league. Other than the fact that as a Florida Panthers fan, I know there's a chance that one day they could win if some magical things happen. But in the NBA, if I rooted for the New Orleans Pelicans, my team is screwed from the get go. And so that's part of what makes it unusual, too, right, is that you, you know, all human happiness is relative to expectations and and depending on what kind of sports team you cheer for in what kind of league, you set your expectations accordingly. And so if you go on a miracle run, it's all the more miraculous if your expectations were that much lower. Yeah. And that's part of, in fact, that's part of what, in some sense, that's part of what makes statistical work so satisfying is because when you do it right, the question you're answering properly is, what should I expect? And if you can correctly set expectations, then... It, it far from taking away from that sense of oh wow this is incredible you can heighten that when it happens because you can say this is absolutely every inch as incredible as you thought it was and you can know and, the pain of what happens when it goes wrong yes and and that that feeling of you know for instance we were talking at the at the top of the of the podcast about um the senators in the hammond years they were they were very very nearly eliminated that year before they stormed back to to make the playoffs and um, 
you know, the National Post featured an article about which included some of my statistics about, you know, just how bad was it? And so they were curious quantitatively, you know, how low did they go? And according to my numbers, they went down to something like 4% to make the playoffs at their lowest. And, you know, that 4% is not that low. You know, you roll a, a 20 sided dice and hit a 20, that's four or 5% right there. Like it's the kind of thing which people are familiar with. Those things do happen from time to time. But, but part of what makes it all the sweeter is knowing that not just that like the odds makers were wrong, but you had the long odds that you deserved and then you beat them. You know, that's really satisfying. That doesn't happen in many other fields other than sports. Because, right. And that's I mean, part of the appeal of sports and part of the appeal of the particular nerdy angle to sports where you can say, you know, no, it wasn't, you know, we weren't just wrong about this all the time. This absolutely is the long shot of the century. And, and this is why you should believe it. Oh, every time you think about that, I hear about Leicester City and I think about Tottenham that year and I get sick. <laughs> I, Somebody I actually asked me, this. did I want that book, which I do have, but I'll never, I won't read that for another 10 to 15 years before I get over that. Which is going to take a long time for me to get over. <laughs> terrible. God. Anyway, well, what what sports? When Spurs beat Leicester, uh, Leicester outplayed them a week ago, and uh, I was like, "Well, that's some pittance for Leicester winning the title when they were absolutely fluking every single possible thing that could possibly happen every single time." Made me feel good to say that, and they beat Leicester, and the, and then they beat Leicester's former coach that won them the title in the same way in another game, and I was like, "Oh, that felt satisfying in a sick way." <laughs> Because that's what sports fandom is. Sports fandom is all about lowering your expectations, especially when you root for my teams. Uh, I've helped, it, is a, it is a story that is told as long as time when you root for not just the Florida Panthers, but the NFL team I like, the Major League Baseball team I like, the soccer team I like, and you went to the college whose athletic department was once described as a dysfunctional viper pit. You see how this goes and why, I mean, people, I, there was another tweet. This is the last thing I'll say before I get the fun stuff about you before we go is when somebody said, describe your Twitter account in five words, and I basically said, how is this guy sober? Like, if you read my Twitter account, you'd be like, how does this guy get through life? He's so angry all the time at sports. And most of it's a lark, but then as somebody told me who was talking to me about job things and talk about how do you portray yourself on social media, and you, you come off as this cynical, skeptical person, I said, I am. A lot of it's a lark. That's what kind of the, the joke is, but it doesn't come off. And I would also say, when you root for the teams I root for, and you've liked them for as long as I have, and you've experienced what I've experienced, you come in from a very, very deeply skeptical and cynical perspective about it. And it's the only way you can do it as a defense mechanism for your own, not insecurity, but for the own pain you're going to feel when you go through that again. And I was not like that when I was younger, and so it affected me deeply in a bad way. But as I told people, you know, people would be over and there'd be a, a Tottenham game on in the background, and my remote would get flung at the wall. <laughs> and I was really angry at something that happened. And it takes a lot to get me that angry. And I said, I warned you, this is going to happen. You know, like that cynicism is a defense mechanism for it. And with the Panthers, it's like, mm, well, they stink. But like making jokes about Ariana Grande's discography being all about how she hates the Panthers and how she wants them to fire Bob Booger is another defense mechanism for that. But anyway, I've, it's been an hour and 45 minutes. I've kept you on a little bit too long. Where can everybody find your work? I think most people know that, but where can most people find your work if they don't know that? So uh, you can find me at, uh, at ineffective math, all one word on Twitter. Uh, it's an old joke about how I couldn't get a full-time math job. That's ineffective math. But I also have a website, which is um, this, all the good stuff with none of um, my bizarre tweets, uh, which is called hockeyviz.com, H-O-C-K-E-Y-V-I-Z.com. 
and uh, you and said it, Zed on a podcast. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. It's fine. I am, it's I am unavoidably Canadian. It, it is fine. I would have to, uh, again, explain to people when I, it's like, I know more about Canada than I ever really ought to because I, I follow hockey. And when you do, you kind of become an honorary Canadian in that way. You learn way more about Canadiana than you should. It's like, why do I? Oh, yeah, way to too much. About, why do I have to know about the Trailer Park Boys' existence? Oh, I root, I'm a hockey fan. Okay. They were on a hockey the, uh, opening. Oops. So I'm I'm from Halifax, and I avoid the Trailer Park Boys. That stuff is uncomfortable. I went to school with some of those people. Oh, boy. Well, that's another podcast entirely. Yeah, exactly. That's so um, hockeybiz.com, that's where you. That's where all of my stuff is. The uh, It's a subscription site. The Some of it is free, and some of it you have to pay for. And the more you pay, the more cool stuff you get. And so that's... um. So I'm not just plugging that for fun. That's my my primary job. Almost all of my money comes from uh, people who subscribe. To my great surprise and endless gratification, almost enough people to pay all of my full-time expenses. Subscribe now, but 550 people. That's pretty good. I mean, It's very fun. I, I wish I had thought about that because talking about Patreon would be another thing that is very interesting in a context of now how democratized it is to get stuff with you know patreon and other things like that but that's a that's another discussion that's the that's the sequel to this podcast micah it's <laughs> great to have you on hope i didn't keep you too long this is a fantastic show and again follow him get his information pay for it i would if i wasn't unemployed and had money which i don't i mean when, when you're worried about paying 24 bucks to renew your registration at the dmv you're poor so you have to in that way again pay for him do, keep him working because he does great work. And again, we're going to have more people like Micah on the show in the future. And hopefully the next time we do this show, there will be actual, you know, more hockey things to talk about other than me saying, well, the Panthers attendance was bad. I don't want to keep talking about that or making jokes about Ariana Grande because, you know, card carrying members of the LGBT community basically have to do that. Anyway, thank you very much for listening and we will see you again very soon.